And once again, we just want to welcome everyone here. My name is Joe Crummy. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central. And uh, I know we have lots of guests here with us for the first time, so we want to extend a very warm welcome to you. And it's great to be able to bring our praise and worship to God. And we're going to continue in our worship. And this morning, I just want to introduce um, Dave and Rosie Fellingham. So Dave and Rosie, why don't you just stand for a second? And they're here from England. And so we want to welcome them. And Dave and Rosie were involved in many, many years in Brighton at Church of Christ the King there. And Dave was one of the elders there for many, many years. And in 1997, they made their first trip here to Fredericton, so over 16 years ago, to um, quite a ragtag bunch of uh, people who were trying to seek God and needed help in establishing church life. And uh, over the next couple of years, as we built relationship, uh, they helped us in that. And in 2002, Dave and Rosie actually moved here to Fredericton for three months and lived here uh, with us and to really get us established over 11 years ago. And uh, now in the last couple of years, they've transitioned. They're now in Horsham and involved in a church there and helping that church grow and to develop and mature. And so we're thrilled to have Dave and Rosie back with us. We had an excellent teaching time yesterday and worship time. And Dave's going to come, and this morning he's going to open up God's Word uh, for us. And so, Dave, why don't you come, and we welcome you, and we look forward to what God's going to say through you. So welcome. Well, good morning. It's <clears throat> great to be with you. I always feel like I'm coming home when I come here, so that's great. So if you'd like to turn to Second Corinthians and chapter 1, and um, we'll just read a few verses from there. But before I do, just by way of introduction to this, one of the things that I love when I travel is to pursue authenticity. So to get the local color. So I was just thinking about this and thinking, what is it that makes an authentic Canadian? And uh, I could rephrase the question and say, what makes an authentic Canadian, eh? <laughs> anyway, um, in my office in, in Horsham, um, I have now got into the habit, it's right in the town center, and um, there's a, a Costa coffee shop quite near so I feel like Joe Crummy every morning when I go in and, first of all, buy my coffee to go and take it into my office. I learned that from Joe many years ago. Um, anyway, the pursuit of authenticity is, um, as I say, is something that I quite enjoy. And I think it's important that as Christians, we know what authentic Christians look like. Before I read, I'd like to just tell you a story about a a young man who was at university and he was doing a degree in zoology. And he completed his degree, he got a first, highly intelligent young man, and his aim and ambition was to do research in a zoo. So he goes along to the local zoo and asks for um, the possibility of doing some research and working in the zoo, and the head zookeeper says to him, well, I'm, I'm very sorry, we actually don't have any vacancies at the moment. So he was very disappointed. So the zookeeper could see the look of disappointment on his face. And he said to him, well, look, I tell you what, it's not what you had in mind, I know, but we've got a temporary appointment. You see, our gorilla has just died. And um, what we need you to do, because the gorilla is a bit of a star attraction, is just dress up in the gorilla suit and just be a gorilla for a few days. We've got another one on order that's coming 
So he said, okay, that, that's, uh, I'll, I'll do it, anything to get a job. So the first day, he puts the gorilla suit on, he's in the cage, and to be honest, he's not very good at it. So at the end of the day, the head zookeeper comes up to him and says, look, if you're going to be a gorilla, you've got to actually act like one. Okay, so you've, there's the tire up there, you've got to swing on it a bit, you've got to climb the tree. So after two or three days, he got really, really good at being a gorilla. And uh, in fact, after about five days, he'd become a bit of a star attraction. And he was really playing up to his audience. Well, the days went by, still no gorilla imported. So he's swinging on the tire, he's swinging in the tree, and he swings so hard he comes straight out of the gorilla pen and ends up in the lion pit. So here he is confronted by this huge lion. So he starts to shout, help, help, help. At which point the lion comes up to him and says, if you don't shut up, mate, we've both got the sack. <laughs> People like to have the real thing. And it's the same with us as Christians. We need to be the real thing. We need to be the real deal. We need people to look at us and say, that is what a Christian looks like. And so that's what I want to try and share with you this morning. The thing that makes Christianity unique, and I often say this when I'm preaching, the thing that makes Christianity unique amongst all world religions is that it is about relationship, it is about new birth, it is about change, it is not just a cerebral head belief in a set of moral codes, it is a dynamic change that goes on on the inside of us through God engaging with us. Christianity is the only religion that is relational. So when we become Christians, we come into a relationship with God. We're dynamically changed on the inside. And Jesus calls that being born again. So when we are born again, we look authentic, or we should do. So it's that that I want to major on. Now, we are looking, we're going to focus on one particular, one or two particular verses this morning to help us to understand what Christians should look like. And this is from a letter that Paul wrote to some Christians in a city called Corinth, which was in Greece. Now, when Paul was establishing Christianity and going from one city to another, he went to the city of Corinth. He established a church there, and after the church was established, he moved on and went to other cities, and he found after a while that these Corinthian Christians were getting themselves into a few problems. There were a few things wrong with their worship, and uh, there were a few things wrong with their behavior, and so Paul writes them quite a strong letter to keep them back on course, and it would seem that after they'd received that letter, they got themselves back on course again. And then sometime after that, there were some people who were from outside of the Corinthian church who were purporting to be Christians and in fact purporting to be apostles who were coming along and they were undermining Paul. And they were kind of rubbishing him really and saying, well, you know, why do you relate with Paul? He's a man, he's, he, he's not, he doesn't look very good. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's not very impressive in his speech. 
Why are you following him? And so his apostolic call was being undermined by these so-called false apostles. Now this really got to Paul, and the interesting thing is about the second letter to the Corinthians that we get a glimpse uh, of Paul and his personality much more than any other letter that he ever wrote. So you see, he, he's almost like uh, fighting uh, inwardly. He talks about fightings within and fears without. He's struggling inwardly with the fact that he is coming under criticism. And I find this actually quite encouraging because we can think that when people criticize us and when newspapers write articles against us and when things happen and people badmouth us, that uh, we think, oh, we can, we're going to just sail through it. Well, you don't. You feel it. And Paul felt it. And, uh, but he handled it. He handled it. And so we see a glimpse of Paul in his humanity in, in this particular epistle. And so he's defending his apostolic ministry. And part of his defense is to say to these Corinthian Christians, look, we are joined together in heart. It's not just that I've come as the super apostle to tell you what to do. I'm amongst you as a father. He says, I'm amongst you as a friend. I am with you. I am joined with you. I am part of you. And so we, we see eventually that these Corinthians do respond to this. So that's the context in which Paul makes this great statement to the Corinthians that we're going to look at in verses 21 and 22. But um, I'll read it from a little bit before just to get that context. So, verse 16. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating, vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it's that verse, those two verses I want to focus on. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, all of us in this room will have grown up with a worldview that is cerebral, logical, and scientific. Our education system in the West is very much geared towards things being logical, towards things being reasonable, and the whole kind of spiritual dimension of mankind is generally left out. Now, if you were around my age, and there are not many of you here who are my great age, but we, we certainly grew up through the 40s and the 50s 
and the 60s with a worldview that was essentially scientific. So the thought of God and of angels and demons and the spiritual world was not, uh, it wasn't discussed, it wasn't thought about, unless, of course, you were a Christian. So generally, your whole kind of thinking and society's thinking was geared towards a cerebral uh, approach to life, a rationalistic, humanistic view of life. In the late 60s, there was a band that hit the world stage, a British band by the name of the Beatles, and uh, they began to explore the whole concept of spirituality. And there was an album that came out in 1968, and uh, people like Gary will remember this, um, uh, and uh, it, it, it was called All Things Must Pass, and it was George Harrison, it was a triple album, and there was a song on it called My Sweet Lord. How many of you remember that? Oh, more than I've realized, okay. And the thing about My Sweet Lord was that it was, um, it was a mixture of a Hindu chant, Hare Krishna, and the Jewish Hallelujah. And it's repeated over and over again. And uh, the Beatles, they went along to um, the Maharishi Yogi in India, and George Harrison made an interesting comment. He said, I know there is another world out there, a secret world, a spirituality, and I want to find the key to unlock it. Now, it would be true today that most social historians would attribute a whole shift that came from that Beatles era and the whole kind of flower power era that that followed that, the whole kind of psychedelic era that, that followed that, where there was a change in people's thinking where the rational cerebral worldview was challenged by the notion that we had a spiritual dimension, that there was something about human beings that was spiritual. And there was a very famous musical that was written, Hair, and it had that song, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. And in a sense, that was the launch of the New Age movement. Now, we've just been in Vancouver, and uh, my city in, in Brighton, where I've lived for a, for a number of years, and I guess it's probably the same here, there is a much greater understanding of spirituality now. It's much more in people's thinking. You're not really regarded quite as weird as you would have done when I was growing up. Um, it's, it's generally more accepted. Now, the problem is that people are looking in the wrong place for their spirituality. Um, but we need to come back to the fact that Christianity is essentially a spiritual religion. It is a religion in which we enter into a world of God dynamically engaging with us. We enter into a world where there are dark forces and dark powers, where there are demonic spirits and the kind of witches that you see uh, in your Halloween kind of celebration, so-called. Um, you know, that kind of unreal kind of world. There is a reality to the occult and spiritual power, but more dynamically and more powerfully in the Christian world, there is a world in which the Holy Spirit of God, the manifest, glorious presence of God, engages with us, 
connects with us and makes our spirituality come alive. And we realize that we are living in a totally different dimension. And some of the things that happen don't quite make sense when somebody gets healed or somebody gets emotionally stirred up and the presence of God comes in. And, and, and when people are changed from living in a wrong way to living in a right way, there is something about that that there is a power, a spiritual power, that engages with us and touches us. Now, this is what real Christianity is about. And so we enter into a world where we are not merely human anymore. We are living on a totally different plane. And so we are in a world where God is real. We're in a world where there are angels. We're in a world where God is alive. We're in a world where God is active. We're in a world where God changes us. We're in a world of supernatural miracles, supernatural ministry. Now, Christians tend to forget that. And what can happen is, even when we read the Bible, and even when we preach the Bible, it is possible to apply, first of all, our reason and our cerebral thinking to filter what the Bible says. But actually, the Bible is what we call theonustos, God-breathed. It's breathed by the Holy Spirit. And so our understanding of the Bible needs to, first of all, come through the Spirit. Now, our mind is important, and Christianity does make sense. But evangelicalism at large generally emphasize the apologetics rather than the supernatural. Now, I believe in apologetics. I believe Christianity makes sense. I believe we've got to look at the historic at the historical veracity of Christianity. We've got to look at the logical reasoning behind Christianity. But that should not be prime. prime. It should be the fact that it is a supernatural religion and comes to us by revelation. Job said, can a man by searching find God? And it may be that you are not yet a Christian and you're searching for God. Well, that's good, but you won't find God by searching Something has to happen to you. Something has to break in on you. And that is what the Bible calls revelation. And God will do that. And I believe you will receive revelation this morning. How do you get that revelation? Well, by people like me preaching it and telling you about it. Because what happens is the Holy Spirit then gets hold of it and makes it alive to you. So that's just by way of background. And it's important that those of you who have come in on that sort of basis, on revelation, on the fact that you are born again, that you are born of the Spirit, that you don't neglect that. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now that is not a word for unchurched, unchristian people. That's a word to Christians. And then the writer to the Hebrews gets on, goes on to say in the next bit, it is God who came to us with signs, wonders, and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so it's important that we don't neglect our beginnings, our work of the Spirit, and the fact that God is a God of signs, wonders, and miracles, and just go on neglecting that, but trying to work it out in our minds. So... Uh, Let's get into the passage. 
So we're going to look at this under four headings under the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at partnering in the Spirit, encountering the Spirit, being authenticated by the Spirit, and the guarantee of the Spirit. So we'll unpack this line by line. So Paul, in verse 21, says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, partnering in the Spirit. The apostle and these people partnering together. So remember the context that Paul was being criticized, but he says, listen, I am joined with you. Now this joining, this word fellowship, is much more than just friendship. It's just more, it's more than giving each other a good hug and a slap on the back and saying, we're good friends. Okay, it's more than that. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, if there is any fellowship in the gospel, any fellowship in the spirit, or the word that is sometimes used uh, in some translations, any partnering in the spirit, what he is saying here, the Greek word for partnering fellowship is koinonia. Now, it's a word that uh, some of you might understand. It's a word which means partnership. So you would talk about the partnership of marriage. You would talk about a business partnership. So it's more than just being good friends. It's actually engaging with one another. So Paul is talking here about partnership in the spirit. It's a fellowship in the Spirit. It's a joining together. Now, I know our church in Horsham will be praying for you and praying for me being here. There is a partnership there. That partnership is a heart partnership, but it's a spiritual partnership as well. Just uh, recently at, uh, at the Bible Week in, in England at North, Joe came and preached. You sent Joe over to come and preach. Now, I'll let you into a little secret. I'm not big on Christian conferences, unless I'm speaking at them or leading worship. <laughs> because, oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <laughs> um, so I don't... I, yeah, anyway, we won't go there. Um, but I heard that Joe was speaking at North. Now, I wasn't speaking or leading worship, but Rosie and I drove 300 miles to hear him preach. And that was my sole reason for going. Why? Because we're partnering in the gospel. We are partnering with you. And I tell you, you'd have been really proud of him. He was fantastic. He really was. Preaching to 3,000 people, a real word of apostolic authority. Um, he won't tell you that, but I can tell you that. He, <laughs> he was great and so well received national impact in what he brought and you need to know what you've got here in this guy okay there is a partnering in the gospel a fellowship well i could expand that but i'll i'll go on the next heading that i want to bring to you is encountering the spirit encountering the spirit it is god who establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us now, the word anointing is one of those words that Christians often use but can rarely define. So we talk about a worship time being really anointed. We can talk about a preacher being really anointed. 
or we can say that person was really anointed or that book was really anointed. But what do we mean? I wonder if you could define it. Well, the problem is with that kind of vague kind of anointing. What is it? There's almost a kind of mystery about it and it's almost like you're saying something good without really knowing what it is. It's a word that can be overworked and it's a word that can be misunderstood. Now, like many words that we have in the Bible in the English language, in the original language, there were several other kind of words that might be translated with one English word. As we were seeing yesterday, the word worship has about 30 different words that are all translated with one word, worship. I suppose it's to do with the paucity of the English language. I don't know. But anointing is one of those words that is used in several ways in the Bible. So I'll just give you some of those ways, and then we'll focus on what this particular context is. So essentially, the word anointing is to do with oil and pouring oil on something. So it would be used of shepherds. And uh, shepherds would be looking after their sheep. And sometimes the sheep would get flies up their nose. And it would make them butt one another and make them butt the trees. And what the shepherds would do, they would, get, they would blend these spices and oils together and they would heat it up and the oil would go up the nose of the sheep and it would kill the flies. Okay, so you can use anointing that way. Okay, now if you've been involved in any kind of pastoral ministry, you will know that sometimes sheep get flies up their nose. Okay, I won't say any more. Okay, so it can be used in that way. It can also be used in, uh, to make shields supple. So in warfare, the warriors would take their shields made of wood and... Uh, probably with some reinforced steel, and they would rub oil in. Now, in England, we have a very mysterious game. It is called cricket. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it, a proper cricket match takes five days to play, and it's like a war. It's like a battle. It's strategy. But what the cricket players would do would be to rub oil on the cricket bat. It makes it supple. So it's the same idea of, as rubbing the oil on the shields. It could be used as a cosmetic. So in the Psalms, we read about the oil of joy. And sometimes people would rub oil on their faces to make their face glow. It was used even to describe the people of God. So in Habakkuk 3, it talks about salvation coming to the Lord's anointed, meaning the Lord's people. But there is another way that the word is used, and this is probably the most common way, and that is that it is a consecration in the sense of something being set apart for God. And there is the whole sense of initiation. So the vessels in the tabernacle were anointed with oil because that was a setting apart. But also the prophets and the priests and the kings were anointed with oil. It was an initiation into their ministry. Now, this is the context, I believe, in which Paul is using this word here, this language here, this anointing. Now, the word anointing is sometimes translated Messiah. 
So Jesus is the anointed one. So when he stood up at Nazareth and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, he was declaring his messianic ministry. And what he was doing was identifying himself with the three classes of people in the Old Testament that were anointed, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, who conducted the spiritual life of the people. So Jesus, in his anointing, in his messianic ministry, is anointed with the Spirit in order that he can be the prophet, that he can be the priest, and he can be the king. And if you were with us yesterday, you will remember how I opened up on that. We haven't got time for that this morning, but just to state it. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, we read this about our salvation. 1 John 3 and verse 20, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean in that context? It means that we have been initiated into salvation by the work of the Spirit. So when we become Christians, the Spirit within us is joined with the Spirit of God. We are born again. We receive the genetic endowment of our Father in heaven. So Jesus is our elder brother. We are made like him. We have the genes of God within us. So we have the potential to be like Jesus. And so our whole Christian life is a quest, really, to be more and more and more like him. So we grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So his spirit within, is within us. So it's a critical, what we call a critical experience. It's something that happens. And there, is a, there are several kind of critical moments. The first is what we call the wake-up call. So we're dead in our sins. I said earlier, you can't by searching find God. How do you find God? Well, God finds you. You know the delirious song, I found Jesus? Great song, but not very theological. It's actually the other way around. Jesus found you when you were lost in your sin. You weren't necessarily looking for him, but he found you. I tell you, that's why you're here this morning. He found you. You didn't realize that, but he has brought you here. And if you are not yet a Christian, then I'm going to pray that God really wakes you up on the inside to understand this. So we get the wake-up call. And then there is, that leads us to being born again. And then there is a power encounter that we can have where it's not just that we are now Christians, but we are empowered to live the Christian life. So Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, it's interesting that in the life of Jesus, Jesus, as the Son of God, lived a perfect, sinless life right the way through his childhood. But when he was baptized, now Jesus didn't actually need to be baptized because of his sinfulness, because he wasn't sinful. He was baptized to identify with our sin. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in the form of a dove, and there was a voice, an audible voice from heaven, which said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus was 
filled with the Spirit in the sense that he was all, already the perfect Son of God. But when he was anointed for the launch of his ministry, he hears the Father say to him, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, you can be born of the Spirit. You can have the Spirit within you, and it's that that makes you a Christian. But there is a subsequent blessing to that where you are anointed with the Spirit. And there are various phrases that theologians use. One is to be baptized in the Spirit, or to be immersed in the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit. It is a critical, decisive experience, and with some people it happens almost simultaneously with their new birth. Others, it takes a while afterwards. With me, I was a born-again Christian. I was an evangelist with the Salvation Army, had a national ministry, but never ever saw anybody saved. And it was very frustrating. And I began to realize that I needed to be baptized with the Spirit, immersed in the Spirit. And I began to seek God. And one Thursday afternoon, the Spirit of God came upon me. I was baptized in the Spirit. The next time I preached, 20 people responded to the altar call. Same preach, same content, difference now, anointed with the Spirit. That's the difference. Now I want to ask you, have you, you may be born of the Spirit, have you been anointed with the Spirit? Because when that happens, there is a power to serve God. There is a power to witness. There is a power to pray for the sick. There is a power to live in the dynamic of the Spirit. Jesus said, you shall receive dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. So there is an explosion that goes on. Well, with some people that's dramatic and powerful. Other people it's like just something quiet, but you've got an assurance that it's happened. Now, one of the things that happens to us experientially with that is that the Spirit within us cries, Abba, Father. That's what happened with Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And if you have a question about the fatherhood of God, does God really love me? Do I really know God as my Father? You need that power encounter so that you are baptized with the Spirit. And then even if that's happened, there can be special fillings of the Spirit for special tasks that God gives you to do. So there is never any situation in which you're in that the enemy gets the upper hand. I'll give you an example. Rosie and I were in the nation of Morocco a few years ago, and uh, there's a death sentence on Christians there, and uh, it's a very dangerous place to be a Christian. And I was walking around the ancient city of Fez, and as we were walking around, I was sharing the gospel with a young man, an Arabic guy, who was, um, he, he, he was very interested in the gospel. He was Muslim, Um, but he was interested in the gospel and I was sharing the gospel with him and I was speaking in English and my missionary friend was uh, speaking in Arabic and translating and we were getting more and more animated and I was getting more and more animated and louder as I was sharing the gospel with him and I suddenly realized that there was a crowd coming around us. Now this was quite frightening um, because the thought of a Moroccan jail did not appeal Um, and what made it worse, this severely demonized man began to attack us. And suddenly the crowd was, whoa, this is... uh, And this demonized man was aggressively coming against us. And I could hear Rosie praying in tongues behind for all she was worth. And then suddenly I felt the Holy Spirit come on me. 
powerfully. It was a special filling for a special need at that point. And I was able to point to this man. Now, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Arabic. But the demon understood the name of Jesus. And I was able to bind the demon and command it to stop in the name of Jesus. And immediately, the whole situation was diffused. I wish it was always as easy as that. But that time, God knew that I needed that to happen. So there are special fillings. So that's what the word anointing means. It's to do with our salvation. It is to do with our being filled with the Spirit, empowered for service. It is to do with the fact that we are now sons of the living God and we understand that and we are in the good of that. And it is to do with the fact that whatever we are doing in our Christian life, there will be times when we need special fillings of the Spirit. Okay, let's go on to the next phrase in verse 21 and has set his seal upon us. And we're looking at this under the heading of being authenticated by the Spirit. Now, there are two images here of the seal. One is of an official letter where the seal says who this is from. So if you had a letter from Her Majesty the Queen, it would be sealed with the royal seal, and you would know that it was guaranteed. The second is to do with the branding of an animal. So if you watch your cowboy films, uh, you know, the, the cattle rancher will brand the animal to mark it as his animal. It belongs to this ranch. So the seal authenticates, you know it's genuine. So we know that we are genuinely adopted into the family of God. It's a genuine knowledge of and experience of the Father heart of God. So knowing the Father heart of God is not just, um, it, it's not just that you believe it and accept it. It is that you actually dynamically experience it. I can remember when I was baptized in the Spirit, going to my dad, who was an amazing Christian, was a great preacher and great musician, taught me how to preach, taught me how to pray, taught me music. And I can remember going to him when I was baptized in the Spirit and saying, Dad, it's absolutely amazing. I've had this encounter with God. I've had this amazing experience of the Holy Spirit. And it's given me a much deeper, richer understanding of fatherhood that even goes beyond your love for me and my love for you. He said, oh, that's great. He said, I remember when that happened to me as well. So that's, it, it goes beyond the natural. Okay, so we are, are authenticated in that way. And a seal is a mark of ownership. We are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. We are captivated not by weapons, not by, by coercion, but by love. And so our motivation, and this is what the grace of God is about, our motivation to please God is not that we're scared of him. It's not that God's going to come along with a big Monty Python foot and crush us if we do something wrong. No, it's that he loves us and so our motivation to service is love. So when it comes to evangelism, I am not the kind of guy to say, there are 10,000 people going to hell every minute in your street, so you've got to get out there and witness. That kind of talk is nonsense in the body of Christ. It really is nonsense. That is not our motivation. It is love that compels us. It's love 
that constrains us. There's an old hymn that says, except I'm moved with compassion, how does your spirit dwell in me? And so that, that desire for evangelism is an expression of worship to God. And so when uh, your church leaders say, we need more people to serve, we need more people to help with the kids' work, we need more people to help us set up, your motivation for that should be love for God, not that somebody is whipping you up to do it. In Psalm 110, it says, your people will volunteer freely, or my people shall volunteer freely in the day of my power. So there is a connection between serving and the day of power. If you want to see power in this church, get serving. Get on the teams that help with the coffee. Get on the teams that help set up. Get on the teams that help with practical things. If you want a day of power in your church, be a server that is motivated by love. My people will volunteer freely in the day of my power. And then a seal brings security. It won't be tampered with. A proper seal will not be tempered with. I tell you, the devil cannot break that seal. When you are sealed with the Spirit, you are eternally secure. Jesus said, none shall pluck them from my hand. So you won't lose your salvation. I tell you, even if you backslide, if you have genuinely born, been born again, that seal will come into operation at some point and draw you back. I know that from seven years of experience of not walking with God. And I, I know that God will bring you back. You will not backslide. So you forward slide, not backslide. Okay, a seal brings security. You are eternally safe. Okay, now let's take the fourth passage as we draw this to conclusion and bring it to land. We are guaranteed by the Spirit. Verse 22, and given us his Spirit as a guarantee. It's a similar verse to Ephesians 1.14 where Paul says, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So this word guarantee in Greek, it's the word arabon, and it's a down payment. So it's like you, if you're going to buy something, but you haven't got the money yet, you pay a down payment, and that guarantees that you will have the thing that you're buying. Now the way it's used in ancient times um, which is very, very interesting here, the way it's used in ancient times was that the down payment must be in kind for what you are going to eventually pay. So if you want to buy 100 sheep and you've got 10 camels uh, and, and you offer 10 camels, but you've only got the camel you've ridden on, you give the camel as a down payment. When you go home, if one of your camels has died, it's no good saying, 10 goats and 8 camels. That will not work. Okay, that would be illegal. It has to be 9 camels because you've deposited a camel. It's a very silly but simple illustration, but I hope it's clear. Okay, now what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment, as a deposit of what is guaranteed for our future. So what happens is that heaven comes to earth 
in us. It's what the theologians call living in the already and the not yet. Okay? So when Paul's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, he says that you prophesy in part, we know in part, but when that which is perfect is come, we will know completely. And so there won't be any more need for prophecy. So the gift of prophecy is bringing a bit of the future of heaven down to here on the earth. Now it's not complete, it's not total, it doesn't mean that every prophecy is perfect. It doesn't mean that every prayer we pray for healing is going to be answered, although the more we have of God, the more we will see that. But when we are praying for the sick, what we are doing is living in that eternal dimension and it's a microcosm here of the new heaven and earth that we're ultimately all going to enjoy. And so that's why we do pray for the sick, why we can prophesy, why we can have words of knowledge. And the more we have of the Holy Spirit, the more we're yielding to the Holy Spirit, the more we're living in the supernatural dimension, the better we will be at doing the works of the kingdom. Because the kingdom is here, it's already, it's not yet in its fullness, but it is here. But there will come a day, I believe, on the, even on this earth, when there will be a greater manifestation of it. So we need to be a people who live in that sense that we are living under an eternal perspective. So we are not merely earthbound humans. We are spirit-filled, dynamic people who are inheriting heaven and earth. Hallelujah. That's our position. So then, what's our response to that? Well, it's quite simple. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Whether it's a crisis experience of the Spirit or whether it is being filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. Not in the sense of, you know, some preachers illustrate this by taking an empty glass or taking a full glass and pouring out the water and saying, life's like that, we're always pouring ourselves out and uh, we come with a jug and fill it up and uh, that's how we pour ourselves out and uh, we get filled up again. No, it doesn't mean that, okay? Forget that illustration, it's not good, okay? The illustration that I would use is be preoccupied with the Spirit, okay? So there are the crisis experiences of the Spirit, but Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's why worship's important, not just when you do it here, but when you're driving in the car and you're stuck behind that tractor or you're stuck in a traffic jam on the bridge, okay, you're singing and praising and worshipping God. When you're going through that difficult situation, when you're going through that bereavement, that illness, that pressure at school, that pressure at university, that situation in the workplace, you have an inward assurance that, yeah, I love God and God, you will bring me through this. That's what being a worshipper is. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You are preoccupied with the Spirit. Now, most guys in this room are preoccupied with football and hockey, okay? And to be filled with the Spirit is to be preoccupied with the Spirit. Nothing wrong with football and hockey. Love football. Don't quite get hockey yet. But um, we are to be preoccupied with God. That's what it means. Don't quench the Spirit. So don't suppress the Spirit. Stir up the gift of the Spirit. 
Stir it up. Walk in the Spirit. So that means everything you do in your daily life is filled with the Spirit. So it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, partnering in the Spirit, and anointed us, our initiating into the experience of the Spirit, and set his seal upon us, our authentication by the Spirit, and given us his Spirit as a guarantee. Our guarantee, a deposit of the future by the Spirit. Amen? Okay, let's have the worship team up. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray.